Turn with me to the book of Daniel. We're going to look at chapter 3 today. I love the stories in this book. They are amazing stories to read. You read them again and again and again, and they're fresh every time you read them. And they're challenging. There's a personal challenge in these stories for me. An example of what it means to believe and trust God, to follow in His way, sometimes in really difficult situations. And so I must admit, this is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. Now, let me just back up to chapters 1 and 2. We won't read them, but just let me tell you where we are in the overall story when we get to chapter 3. Last week we looked at chapter 1, and we were told that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had come and had taken Judah. He had taken the city of Jerusalem. He had conquered those people. He conquered the people of God by God's hand, it says. God directed and empowered him to do so. And he decided to take some of the finest young men out of Judah, out of the city of Jerusalem, men who were bright, good-looking, of noble birth, and to take them back to Babylon to teach them how to serve him. And so the story follows four especially of those young men. Daniel is one, and we'll look at three of of his close friends today. We saw in that first chapter how they had to struggle with how can we be faithful to God in a brand new situation where we're taken from our people, we're taken from our country, we're taken from the temple, where we have worshipped God and offered sacrifices for 400 years and now we're dumped in a new place far from family, learning a new language, and there is no temple of the Almighty God in this place. How do you be faithful to Him? How do you serve Him? How do you love Him? And we saw in chapter 1 three things especially that they did that brought honor to God in that very strange environment for them. One is they diligently learned. They were given the task to learn the language and the culture and the wisdom and all the literature of the people of that place. And so they diligently gave themselves to that, and God blessed them. They did extremely well, both in learning the language and the culture, the wisdom, the ideas of that people. And they adapted. They had to adapt. They were given new names, probably because the Babylonians couldn't say their Hebrew names. And so they got new names, names that they may not have been happy with, but they adapted, they adjusted, they had to. It was a new environment, a new language, they had to change, and they did. But in that change, they said it in their hearts that they would be faithful to God. They would follow His ways, even though they were in a new place that didn't know His ways. And so they decided not to defile themselves And we saw in that first chapter how God blessed them very specially because of these things. And at the end of chapter 1, we see that Daniel and his friends were considered some of the wisest of the wise men of Babylon, and Daniel was put in charge. Well, chapter 2 is about Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. 
It was a strange dream to him. He didn't know how to interpret it, but he felt it meant something. And so he decided to go to the wise men and ask them to help him understand the dream. But we see a bit that Nebuchadnezzar didn't quite fully trust those wise men. Normally a king would go to his wise men and tell them the dream and then ask them what it meant. But he thought, well, they could just make up any meaning they want to if they know the dream. So he went to the wise men and said, I had a dream and I want you to tell me what it was. And then I want you to tell me what it means. And of course, the wise men immediately said, king, no king is ever Ask his wise men to actually tell him the dream. The, you know, you don't know the game. The game is, you tell us the dream, we make up a meaning. And Nebuchadnezzar came back and said, no, I'm not going to do that. In fact, if you do not tell me my dream and what it means, I'm going to kill every one of you. Including, of course, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were among those wise men. God revealed the dream to Daniel and he went to the king and he said to Nebuchadnezzar, King, I know your dream and I know what it means. And so he told Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar was thrilled that God had revealed this to Daniel and gave honor to God for doing so and then promoted Daniel and his three friends. In fact, he put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in charge of of managing the whole province around the city of Babylon. Extremely powerful positions. Because he saw there was something special about these young men. So then we come to Daniel, the third chapter. And in the beginning of this chapter, we see that Nebuchadnezzar decided to unify his empire which stretched over multiple languages and peoples and religions. And he tried, he wanted to unify the whole empire under the worship of one primary God. And so he built a statue, an idol, 90 feet tall. It's pretty big. Nine feet wide, covered in gold. Can you imagine how beautiful and awesome that must have looked from quite a distance away? And because he wanted to unify the whole empire together, he decided that he was going to call all of the officials from every province in the empire. Now, the, the Babylonian Empire was huge at this time. And we're told in verse 3, for instance, that here are all of the officials, the government workers that he called together from all of the province, satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other rulers. It must have been thousands of people from all across the empire. And he called them together. He gathered them in front of this idol to his God. And then he made an announcement. When you hear the band play, and it was a big band. He names about eight different musical instruments that are going to play. When you hear all of this sound from the band, 
I guess we might call it a worship band in a sense. But when you hear all of this cacophony of sound from all of these different instruments, everyone before the statue is to immediately fall to the ground. You're to bow down before this idol and worship my God. And they did. They did. All across all these all of these leaders from across the empire immediately fell down and worshipped Nebuchadnezzar's God. Except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I don't know whether they knew what was coming and just didn't show up. Or whether they were trying to stand in the back. I'm quite confident they weren't standing on the front row because everyone would have seen. But somehow they managed not to do so. Remember in chapter 1, they had said it in their hearts. We will be faithful to our God. We will not follow the gods of Babylon. We will be faithful to the Lord Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they did not do what all the other government officials had done. Well, it's not a surprise that these three foreigners... By the way, this takes place in the province of Babylon. Remember who has been given the management of the government for the province of Babylon is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's not surprising that many of the local officials would be a little bit jealous of these three. Who are foreigners? They haven't been there that long. They probably speak with an accent. And now they have disobeyed Nebuchadnezzar, the king, who within his empire had the power of life and death over every single living person in the whole empire. And so they came to Nebuchadnezzar and they said, Mighty sir, we know that there are some officials who refused to do what you said. They've disobeyed your commandment. They're government officials. They're supposed to show everyone how to obey your commandment. And they themselves have disobeyed your commandment. And they identified that it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, look in verse 13 now. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar said. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? And then graciously... He gives them a second chance. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my? 
The God that this statue represented, we're not told who, but it seems likely that it was actually the Babylonian god Nabu. Nebuchadnezzar's name came from the name of that god. He was the son of Marduk, the prime god of the pantheon of gods in Babylon. And as we read and look at ancient history especially, we see that this action on the part of Nebuchadnezzar is not that unusual. It was quite common that the king would declare that everyone was going to be devoted to a particular god and would set up something like this, though this one seems to have been rather unusual both in its size, the expense of building this statue. And it's not a surprise that the officials were asked to do this without any preparation. They just showed up and they were told to bow down immediately and to worship this god. Because in this approach to religion within an empire, what Nebuchadnezzar was demanding was public conformity. He just wanted everybody to agree and go through the motions. He couldn't possibly judge their hearts. He couldn't know if they were dedicated to some other god too or what. But his expectation is that they would immediately fall down and publicly show their support for the god of the king, Nabu, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this means that probably throughout the ancient world when this happened, it wasn't necessarily that the people had personal conviction. They just knew that they were being asked by their government, by their king or emperor, that they would fall down each time they got this sign that now's the time. Wherever you are, Fall on your face before him and worship him. So it's public conformity without personal conviction. And how did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond in this situation? They've already been warned about what will happen if they respond wrongly. Well, look at what they say in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. I assure you that was not the answer that Nebuchadnezzar was looking for or expected. My guess is this may have been the first time in his life since becoming king that anyone had ever addressed him this way. You're just the king of Babylon. You're just one of the most powerful kings in the whole world. You just have power of life and death over us. We're not even going to give you an answer. Because they recognized immediately what the issue was. The critical issue for them was authority. The king has the right to set laws. The king has a right to tax. The king has a right to do so many things. They believe Nebuchadnezzar did not have the right to tell them to disobey their faith. And so they say, you are not the authority. You're not the highest authority. There is one who is over you. And so they answer this important question that we have to answer on a regular basis. Who do we answer to? 
Who is it that we look to first and foremost to determine if we are doing the right thing? Now, in America today, we don't have an emperor. Sometimes this long, drawn-out political process makes me almost wish for one occasionally. But that's not going to happen. We're not going to have an emperor, no kings in America. You know, I really am, you know, 1776. Yay, yay, no kings. But it's interesting that culturally we have what appears to be a growing authoritative voice in our culture. It's not a king. It's not an emperor. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. But I would call this growing authoritative voice the tyranny of the majority. We are in a time now where personal consciousness, personal conscience and conviction is under attack. How dare you disagree with the majority? On that day before that statue, there must have been thousands who fell to their knees and worshipped a statue, and only three who somehow said no. They will not. It's interesting that at a time where we say that in our culture, again broadly, not among Christians, but in, in a sense we're saying that we don't believe in objective truth, we are replacing the thought and the authority of objective truth with popular opinion. And if those who disagree don't stand up, and state it regularly, clearly, but gently and humbly. That authoritative voice will grow in its expectations, I believe, in our own culture. So they identified that the foundational issue here was even though they were speaking to a king, the issue was authority. And their highest authority was not Nebuchadnezzar, even though he could kill them. Their highest authority was God Almighty. They would be faithful to him. And so I want you to listen to the statement that they make now to the king. Because I believe, as I read the Old Testament, for me, this is one of those high points in the story of God working with his people. These next two verses contain one of the strongest statements of faith I've ever read. And it challenges me to be like them. Because what they lay out are three facets of faith to face the furnace. And I hope none of us are going to be thrown in a fiery furnace this week, but we do face trials and we do face pressure. So listen to what they say in verse 17. If the God we serve exists, and obviously they believe he did, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were absolutely confident in God's power. Some translations say, He is able. God is powerful. And those who follow him need to believe, must believe, that God is God. There is no other. He is powerful. 
We often throw out little tests for him to see if he'll answer them. And sometimes we almost lose our faith. Is God really that powerful? Can he really help me? They believed that God could and they expressed confidence in his power. But the next statement, they go one step beyond that. And he will rescue us from your power, O king. You see, this is a direct answer to what Nebuchadnezzar had said just before this. Who is the God who can rescue you from my power? They said, our God can rescue us. And we believe, we expect He will deliver us even from your power, O King. Our God is not only powerful and far away, our God is here and loving. He cares for us. He has concern for us and this particular trial that we're facing. They are confident not just in His power, but in God's concern and care for them, And they express expectation that God is going to deliver them. Even if the king throws them. Who knows what, how in the world God would do it. But they believe that God would deliver them. But I want you to hear verse 18 because it's so amazing. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship this gold statue that you've set up before us. We know God is able. We know God is powerful. We know He cares for us. He knows about this this issue and we are expectant that He will deliver us. But if God chooses not to, We will not turn from Him. We will believe. We'll be faithful. There are many people who briefly turn to God thinking, I need some help. And they bring their list of things and they say, God, I'll believe in you and I'll follow you as long as you do everything I want you to do for me. And if he fails on one of their to-do lists, then now they're not so sure about this God. The only problem with that is that if God has to do everything that I say, doesn't that seem backward? Who is trying to be God in that relationship? If God is God and if He is powerful and if He is concerned, surely we can trust Him to work in our lives. But in the end, isn't He God and not me? And sometimes what I want and what God chooses are very different because I don't see everything. I I, I don't even know the difference between blue and purple. God knows everything and He sees everything from an eternal perspective. I'm usually looking between now and the weekend. Oh, God, help my football team win. Uh, you know, whatever. We, we look short term. 
God sees everything. And if He actually did everything that we say, it would be detrimental to us. And He'd no longer be God. You see, these three facets are so powerful together. Don't lose confidence that God is powerful. Don't lose expectation that He hears you and that He cares about you and is concerned for you and that He can step in to help you. But trust His sovereignty. He's in charge. It's supposed to be that way if you haven't figured it out yet. He's supposed to be in charge. And He is. Now, Interestingly, in this particular case, even though they said they would be faithful even if God didn't rescue them, He does miraculously rescue them. They're tied up, they're thrown into the furnace. The men putting them in are burned to death, just getting them up to the furnace. And as soon as they're thrown in, all tied up, Nebuchadnezzar is the first one to see. He's watching. And they're not three burning bodies, but three men walking around in the furnace with another added. And Nebuchadnezzar says, that one looks like the son of the divine. Where did he come from? Is that the son of the gods? And I believe the Lord God sent an angel to stand there in that furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then... Nebuchadnezzar says the most amazing thing in verse 26. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you servants of the Most High God. Higher than Nebuchadnezzar? Higher than Nabu, the statue right there? You are servants of the Most High God, come out. And they testify to God's goodness and grace in their lives. God does that. But not every time. This morning in our first service, we heard an amazing testimony from one of our members about miraculously being saved from a fall off of a horse that should have killed her. God stepped in and granted her Grace in that moment. He's the one that decided it. But you know, there are times when we come to God and we ask Him, maybe with all of our hearts for something, and sometimes, we we have to say this, sometimes God knows better and says no. One of the furnaces that all of us will eventually face is the end of this life. It's like a trial furnace for, for all of us. And sometimes we come to God and we ask Him to extend our life to heal us. And our church is filled with people that He has done that for, to extend their lives. But let's look at it again, though, from God's perspective. It is not God's will that all of us in this room, or actually any of us in this room, live forever on this side, in this world. It is not His will. 
His will is to redeem us completely and for us to be with Him. And eventually, even if our lives have been extended, that is the ultimate will that we're going to move to. But there are some who just can't seem to see that. There have been many in history who've cried out to God and they've not been rescued from the furnace. We saw it on television just a couple of months ago. 21 Coptic Christian men from Egypt lined up on a beach, told they could renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. And as they stood there singing a hymn of praise to Jesus, their heads were chopped off for the whole world to see. They are only a small number of the probable thousands of Christians who stood their ground and given their lives in the Middle East in the last year. Praise God for their faithfulness. In the year 2005 AD in the city of Carthage in North Africa, where the Christian church was growing very rapidly, there was a young 22-year-old mother, small baby, of noble birth, of an important family, And she heard about the love of Christ and she believed. And she joined a baptism class and all five people in that baptism class were captured by the Roman authorities and put on trial for their faith. Her name was Perpetua. Her father, who was an important man and great influence, came to her just before the trial and begged her. All she had to do was make an offering to the emperor and he would let her go. Just a simple offering. And she turned and she pointed to a clay pot and looked at her father and she said, can you call that anything than what it is? And he said, well, it's a clay pot. And she said, in the same way, you can call me nothing except a follower of Christ because it is who I am and I can be nothing else. A few days later, she died before thousands of people as they watched her gored to death by a bull for her faith. John Huss, in 1415, a Catholic priest in the city of Prague who began to speak out very strongly against the teaching of the Catholic Church that said that the church could sell forgiveness. If you had sins in your life that needed to be wiped away, if you just gave the church enough money, those sins could be wiped away. And about a hundred years before Luther said the same thing, he said, this is blasphemy before God. And he would not recant. And they burned him at the stake in the middle of the city. And he went gladly because he could not deny the truth. I don't know what trials we'll face in each of our lives, but there will be some. And if we can hold on to this kind of faith that faces even a furnace, we can bring honor to God. We can be faithful to the end. Confidence that God is powerful. He is. Expectant that He knows our need. And may rescue us, but absolute trust in His sovereign choice 
in our lives. That is a faith, my friend, that nothing can defeat. It is a faith that America needs right now. And it is a faith that you and I can live out every day in this place. We're going to sing again that song, I Will Follow. There may be someone here this morning who's never made that commitment to follow Christ. Would you do so this morning? Would you believe in Him? He loves you. But for each one of us, this is a time of rethinking and committing in our hearts. Will we set it in our hearts to believe, to follow, to be faithful? Let's stand together as we sing.